0: Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development.
1: Hello and welcome to this edition of Voice of Africa. I'm delighted today to be joined by Siegfried Hügemann, known to his friends as Siggy. He's the initiator and co-founder and vice chairman of the African Hydrogen Partnership. Today we're going to talk about all things hydrogen and the hydrogen economy. Siggy is a director, too, of Power, which is a UK-based company specializing in the development of hydrogen fuel cell powertrains for lightweight transportation vehicles. He's one of the two founding members of the African Hydrogen Partnership. You have a degree from the University of Otago in New Zealand, and you are of German nationality. I think that's right, Siggy? That's correct. And interestingly, before you embark on your pursuit of hydrogen and all things related to hydrogen electrolysis, You spent 20 years in banking technology. I'm interested to know a little bit more about why and when you changed horses. Welcome, Siggy, and tell us a little bit about the African Hydrogen Partnership and the motivations for you founding this association.
0: Yeah, good morning, uh, Marcus. Uh, Thank you very much for for having me on this uh, call this morning. So maybe uh, just a quick introduction about myself and what brought me to hydrogen, and then I'll provide you with more information about the African Hydrogen Partnership. My name is Inge Hügemann. I'm a German uh, who lives uh, in the UK in a beautiful place called Henley on Thames, which is between uh, London and Oxford. And uh, I've been following the hydrogen fuel cell technology literally for 40 years. And back in uh, 2014, when uh, Toyota and Hyundai released the first commercially available hydrogen fuel cell passenger cars to the market, I thought, okay, now the time has come to do something for Africa and with Africa and in Africa. So I I started a little block. At that time, it was called the African Hydrogen Power Block. And that went on for a few years where I just shared articles from other sources on that block, but there was always the idea to start a continent-wide association. And then there was a young Dutch PhD student who uh, lived in Zimbabwe, who joined me then at the end of 2018 and said, hey, can we work together and really sort of transform that now into a proper organization? And I said, this is great. You're coming at the right time. So we changed that then, this initiative, into an, one would say, unincorporated association. And uh, we had our first conference in Addis Ababa uh, last year. Then we decided at that conference, so the whole group to incorporate it, the African Hydrogen Partnership in Mauritius. And we were closely together with well known uh, legal firms as well as accountancy firms, incorporated then the unincorporated association into a proper organization which means association in mauritius at the end of last year we opened it up for new members to join in february this year so it's a very young organization and uh, yeah and since then uh, we have seen a fairly good development quite a few uh, known companies have joined us already as well and we are going to have our first general assembly uh, next week
1: Congratulations, Siggy, on the progress that you're making there. Tell our audience why they should care about hydrogen. What's the significance of this fuel technology?
0: That is a very, very good question. And uh, actually, that is uh, possibly one of the most important questions. I mean, everyone uh, has heard about global warming and this uh, massive threat that it poses to the whole globe. And in order to decarbonize the globe, we have to work with renewable energy technologies. Of course, there are other ideas as well, like nuclear energy. But let's focus now on the renewable energy technologies. For that, there are two basic methods available for storing energy, so to say. And on the one side, you you have the batteries, and on the other side, you have hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell technology, as well as so-called hydrogen derivatives like uh, green ammonia and green methanol. So, which means uh, without managing the intermittent character of renewable energy and trying to make sure... That you can transfer the energy in a very efficient way from A to B between the different sectors of an economy, you need either batteries or basically hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell uh, technology. And uh, hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell technology is the only universally applicable energy storage medium, so to say. Think about a big steel mill or a cement factory. How would you like to run that on batteries? That is just not possible yeah so in this context I think it's important to mention that those two technologies are not mutually exclusive not at all they complement each other so there are sectors in an economy for example regular smaller passenger cars where batteries might be the better solution yeah but there are other parts of an economy for example the industry where at least at the moment hydrogen is a much better option which means one needs to consider all options available for fast-tracking the decarbonization of an economy. Please allow me to mention that in this context, it's important to think about the whole energy consumption of an economy. In, In very simple terms, we have three major sectors. So we have the industry, we have residential and commercial buildings, and then there is transport. It's a bit confusing always to think about just the decarbonization of the power generation, the electricity sector. Yeah? So it's much easier to see, you know, what really needs to be achieved when we focus on the primary energy consumption of the whole economy and here primarily on those three sectors. Yeah? So it's industry, residential and commercial and then transport. And here, there are still some very sobering (laughs) numbers. For example, the UK, as well as Germany, just to to name you two nations, uh, more than 80% of the primary energy consumption is still based on fossil fuels, as well as on nuclear energy, although the nuclear energy is just a very, very small part of it. Nevertheless, it illustrates that there is still so much to do, and we have to consider... Every sector, including the industry, heavy industry, energy-intensive industries, and here hydrogen, of course, has a very important role to play.
1: So Siggy, just for my benefit and the benefit of our listeners, I think what you're saying is that the potential, because it's certainly not realized as we speak, but in your view, the potential of hydrogen fuel technology to serve the base energy needs of an industrializing economy, it's that potential that you and your members are seeking to realize. That is right. Yeah. So
0: that is actually uh, this potential offers great opportunities for Africa. I personally believe that it will be extremely difficult, if not impossible to decarbonize Europe without green African hydrogen. And that, of course, offers a, a great opportunity for African nations. So in very simple terms, it's always the same when one plans larger projects, programs, etc. What comes on top of every program or project plan is the constraints and restrictions in so-called inbound and unbound dependencies. Yeah? People tend to jump right into the middle and have discussions about all sorts of things. But hey, you know, let's start at the beginning. What are the constraints and restrictions and what? does it mean? you know? Can we do this or that at a later point in time? No, we can't because of this hard roadblock, for example, or because of this bottleneck, things will slow down and so on and so forth. And I think it's quite interesting to see that now the, the world leaders or many nations have seen decarbonization will not happen without hydrogen. So more than 35 nations already have national hydrogen strategies and national Hydrogen budgets, more than 35, and that is quite an impressive number. And the journey goes like that. So they have now realized that hydrogen is not optional, that it's needed for decarbonizing the economy. And now more and more leaders see that green hydrogen produced from using renewable electricity is not optional either. So and quite a few leading nations have recognized that. for example, Germany. And I believe it's now only a question of time when the next step will happen, which means when many leaders in Europe, in East Asia, and wherever in the world will say, okay, green African hydrogen or natural African hydrogen is not optional as well. And that will then become a real great opportunity for Africa.
1: Well, that's very exciting, Siggy. Um, The prospect that Africa could provide energy for Europe and potentially other markets in the world is certainly an enticing prospect. But just before I ask you to unpack that a little bit more and tell us why, in your view, Africa could have competitive advantage in green hydrogen technology, can I take you... Back to basics, you referenced their green hydrogen. That supposes that there are different forms of hydrogen fuel cell technology. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us and really back to basics? What are the components of hydrogen energy?
0: Maybe you have heard about uh, gray hydrogen, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, whatever. Uh, And that relates primarily uh, to the way how hydrogen is produced. So uh, green hydrogen in very simple terms is produced by using a process that is called electrolysis. So you have an electrochemical device called an electrolyzer. You have water in the electrolyzer and you use electricity for cracking the water molecules. And what you then get are hydrogen and oxygen, because water consists of hydrogen and oxygen. And where does the electricity come from? Ideally, from renewable energy sources like wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, etc. And then you have basically produced a green fuel. Yeah. So um, that is a green hydrogen. There are other ways of, um, of producing hydrogen. For example, you can produce hydrogen from natural gas and that type of hydrogen is then used called a gray hydrogen. And that is a bit of a, of a problem because it's not really helpful. It it increases the carbon dioxide emission. So science and then uh, the industry have come up, or some scientists and, and some industrial companies have come up uh, with an alternative. And that is called the so-called blue hydrogen. And basically, it's gray hydrogen where the emissions of carbon dioxide and ideally methane are captured and then stored underground that is called blue hydrogen but the blue hydrogen is never emission free because uh, pipelines leak etc etc so the ideal way forward are two types of hydrogen it's green hydrogen produced from renewable electricity and what's called the natural or white hydrogen now please allow me to mention natural or native hydrogen comes out of the ground yeah so you try to find it in the ground like fossil fuels. There is a very large natural native hydrogen field in Mali. And that is just a hundred meters below the surface. So you can basically drill a hole and get huge amounts of hydrogen out of the ground in Mali. And the interesting part of that is the purity of hydrogen, of that hydrogen is very, very high. So it's something like whatever, 98.5 or plus 99% pure, uh, clean. And that is really, really good. So it all comes down to green hydrogen or to so-called natural slash native hydrogen.
1: Tell us a little bit more about the native hydrogen, if you will, just before we delve a little further into Africa's green hydrogen potential. You referenced there that Mali has a native hydrogen field that is relatively accessible. Can you explain that a little bit? more what technology is required to access that energy potential
0: so that is a is a relatively new field the the hydrogen was discovered uh, in Mali a few years ago uh, now I'm, I'm not really that deep into the technological details uh, but you you gotta view it a bit like a natural gas field it's basically more or less the same process so you drill a hole in the ground and then you get the hydrogen out of the ground. Of course, you need to potentially store it somewhere for the local consumption, or then you can get it into pipelines or liquid organic hydrogen carrier in order to transport the hydrogen. What is so interesting in that area of the world is basically in West Africa, they have a large iron ore and bauxite deposits there as well and gold mines and so on and so forth. And of course... The mining industry is looking or needs to decarbonize its industry as well. And uh, that is very difficult for them to do, you know, because all these mining vehicles are very, very big vehicles. The hauler trucks and whatever, they're huge. And you can't have them running on batteries. So for that, uh, there are quite a few initiatives going on in the world. For example, in South Africa and in other regions of the world where they really come up now, and that relates to the fuel cell technology, to hydrogen fuel cell technology for decarbonizing this specific part of the transportation sector which belongs to the mining industry and uh, these are very visionary plans but uh, i mean why not thinking about you know getting the, the hydrogen out of the ground in mali yeah and use it directly for the big trucks in the mines in west africa And that, of course, would be a tremendous cost reduction for the whole venue creation chain. And this is another great advantage because renewable energy comes with a price ticket, especially when one considers now now Europe. And uh, here Africa clearly has an advantage because one can get that, I would think, I don't know. I, I haven't seen any official calculations for the production of hydrogen in Mali, but I could imagine one could get it for less than 50 US dollar cents per kilogram.
1: Siggy, you mapped out a very compelling vision of Africa as a global contributor to the renewable energy mix. The world is grappling with the transition to renewables and the challenge of getting to net zero in order to combat climate change. In the scenario that you painted earlier for us, you painted an image of Africa contributing to that global energy mix and making a significant contribution to that clean transition through the contribution of hydrogen energy or important parts in the hydrogen electrolysis value chain. Can you unpack that picture for us?
0: So there's three major markets. So first is exporting green hydrogen from Africa to Europe in other parts of the world, like Asian countries, South Korea and Japan. So African nations would become energy exporting uh, nations. Is that sort of just an idea or so? No, not really. So the German government is already strongly supporting the work on such concepts in countries like Chile, like Australia, and now in Namibia as well. So the German government works closely together, for example, with the Namibian government on developing such plans. Yeah. Then we have the domestic market. I already mentioned mining trucks, backup power systems, etc. Uh, and last but not least, yeah, one could think about attracting energy-intensive industries to Africa. Why not having steel mills in Africa that produce steel, which is possibly a lot easier to ship and to deliver than energy in general? So there are three major market sectors here. So where does the potential really sit for Africa? And that relates to various factors. The first factor is the sheer potential for producing low-cost price competitive green hydrogen or a native natural hydrogen. So in order to produce green hydrogen, one needs renewable energy, you need water and you need space. In order to have the electrolyzers uh, running at full capacity, one needs to have a combination of strong winds and very strong solar radiation. And they are just a few areas in the world which bring that together. And in some of the best regions for doing that are in Africa. Yeah? So for example, in Northwest Africa, in Morocco, in the West Saharan region, including Mauritania, very windy, very sunny. The electrolyzers can run the whole day, whatever, almost 24 hours a day. And you need to have access to water, and one could use the coastlines, the sea waters. So, like with Morocco, Mauritania, Namibia has ideal conditions for that as well. South Africa, the Horn of Africa, and Africa is some of the best regions in the world for producing low-cost, price-competitive hydrogen. Now, there are two other aspects one, one need to bear in mind, and that relates to sustainability so because one cannot and should not segregate the protection of the climate as well as the protection of biohabitat and biodiversity that always needs to be viewed as a package so no matter what one does yeah one needs to for decarbonizing the globe one needs to minimize the negative impact on biohabitat and biodiversity And by protecting biohabitat and biodiversity, that is basically what's called sustainability. It needs to be sustainable. So, and here, many regions in the world have to deal with constraints and restrictions. Think about, for example, Germany. I believe it's a bit of an illusion to assume that more than 80 percent of the primary energy consumption of Germany could be decarbonized with domestically produced renewable energy in Germany. Germany doesn't have the sunshine, the, the solar radiation. Yeah, There are some windy regions in the North Sea. But you know, that area in the North Sea is limited because there are nature reserves, the military has some exercise areas there, the maritime traffic needs space, and so on and so forth. So there are so many constraints and restrictions, and Africa has open, unused spaces where one can minimize the negative impact on the environment. And these are basically the deserts. So, Uh, South Africa, Namibia, Morocco, Mauritania, the Horn of Africa, uh, one has those windy, sunny regions with a coastline and unused spaces. Of course, there will be an impact on the environment in the deserts of Namibia if one erected their large-scale photovoltaic plants, but that is relatively small in comparison with a massive impact on the forests in the UK, on the meadows in Germany, so on and so forth. So and that's a great advantage. The second advantage in that context of sustainability relates to rules and regulations. In Europe, we see a lot of conflicting rules and regulations already, and it's very difficult to deal with those constraints and restrictions. Think about For example, one would like to construct a wind energy farm somewhere in Germany. And there you have a rare species of predator birds, uh, a kite, for example. It would be very, very difficult to get permissions uh, for erecting or for constructing uh, such a wind farm in that area where you have protected species of certain birds. Uh, And Africa, again, here, due to the desert, uh, has some real valuable options
1: to offer. So thank you. So it's renewable energy, potential of constant sunshine and strong winds. So hydrogen electrolysis is a very power-intensive technology. And so you need to have cheap inputs of renewable energy through, as you suggested, constant wind, constant sunshine. and, And then you need the space because presumably the electrolysis value chain requires a lot of space tell us a little bit more about what's required in establishing an electrolysis plant
0: you think about now the, the purpose of the plant. so for example for exporting yeah so we, basically you need wind turbines you need photovoltaic cells yeah large scale, so large fields uh, to give you an idea if i now remember correctly So you need round about one mega, two hectares. So a hectare is 100 times 100 meters for producing one megawatt of electricity in very simple terms. Uh, And then you need the electrolyzers. And in this context, uh, just as a ballpark figure, you might want to remember that the production of a kilogram of green hydrogen requires round about 45 kilowatt hours. So in that range, yeah. Yeah, you need the electrolyzers then you have to store the hydrogen and then subject to how you would like to deliver or to ship it. Uh, you either put that hydrogen into pipelines and then it goes from there, for example, to the refueling stations, or you work with so-called liquid organic hydrogen carriers, uh, which is a chemical substance. So a type of an oil, where you then have electrochemical processes and you attach that hydrogen Through those chemicals, and then you can use the existing infrastructure currently used by crude carriers for uh, crude oil carriers for shipping them the liquid organic hydrogen up north. When you have it then, for example, at the port of Rotterdam, you have to detach the hydrogen from the liquid organic hydrogen carrier, and then from there you can use it. So it's quite a bit of an infrastructure that is required, but that, of course, is a great opportunity for Africa as well in terms of the socio-economic development. And let me mention that as well, you know, that this is a a very important aspect for us too.
1: Thank you for that. Siggy, you referred to um, the infrastructure requirements and to play a part in the global hydrogen value chain. Which African nations have embarked on a journey to build some of this infrastructure? Which are those countries that are really looking at the opportunity to participate in this new industry?
0: To name just a few, it's uh, Morocco, Mauritania, Namibia, uh, two degree South Africa, as well as Egypt, and of course Mali. They are uh, now the first requests for information, uh, working on a feasibility study out in Namibia. And so far as I remember correctly, they would like to construct a gigawatt-sized hydrogen production facilities in Namibia. So Morocco sees really the great chance. Uh, They are talking to various nations, and I think they are already working on implementing now the first real project for producing green hydrogen in Morocco. In Mauritania has signed 40 billion U.S. dollars MOU uh, with uh, some companies from, uh, I think uh, they came from Australia. Uh, so, so there is a considerable interest in developing those projects in Africa already.
1: Interesting. And what part does the organization that you co-founded, the African Hydrogen Producers Association, what part is that playing in helping develop the industry in Africa?
0: That is a, a good question. Yeah. So we are, we are an association, a trade association. And what we would like to do is we would like to help the countries basically to create awareness. Yeah. What the associations will do, but then to, to develop the market, bringing supply and demand together and help to facilitate the cooperation between the African nations on the one side, and then as well, you know, nations from the other side of the world. Yeah? So, I mean, in an ideal scenario, of course, we would uh, like to, and hopefully we'll get there, yeah, to provide platforms in association then with our members yeah, for publishing hydrogen prices, spot or forward prices to develop organizations where we can possibly invest in programs directly and so on and so forth.
1: And are there any equivalent associations globally that represent best practice, in your view, and that the AHP is seeking to emulate and hope to achieve the same sort of progress perhaps they might? That's right, yeah, and that
0: is Hydrogen Europe. So Hydrogen Europe is basically a continent-wide hydrogen and hydrogen future tech association, and this is how we view ourselves as well. Yeah, But we are still a very young organization, although it's a, it's a very good growth rate, but it's a, it's a good development.
1: Tell us a little bit more about your growth ambitions as an association. What do you hope to achieve the remainder of this year, going into next year, and perhaps over the next five, 10 years?
0: So there were two companies that founded the African Hydrogen Partnership. Then we opened it up uh, for uh, new members to join. And now we are already 10 organizations, yeah? so, uh, companies uh, in, in total, member company, member organizations. So that has been a very encouraging progress because that is basically uh, what we have called the HP Pioneers. And that is pretty much in accordance with our plan. Uh, financially, I, I think it looks pretty good as well uh, because we have grown organically and uh, we just finished our audit report. And what it shows is that it's basically a financially feasible organization, which is really good. So going forward, we're closely together with other associations. So hydrogen fuel cell, a tech association, industry associations, as well as associations for the financial industry together and to form a close collaborations with or working closely together with African governments. And here we are making very, very good progress as well. The idea is, yeah, the African hydrogen partnership started very, very small. Yeah, it was built uh, bottom up that we now change it to a top down approach where we bring uh, the governments as well as the industry captains together in order to create real large scale projects and basically help. And that is always in accordance with uh, antitrust rules and regulations and help forming industry consortiums, financial syndicates, that can really develop those great business opportunities for African nations and the continent as a whole.
1: Siggy, I mentioned to our listeners at the beginning that you'd spent 20 years in finance, and specifically, I think, working in derivatives and aspects of banking technology. What is it that took you into the world of hydrogen and clearly your passion that, that is clear for all things to do with the hydrogen economy?
0: Actually, I'm still working in the financial industry and I support the African Hydrogen Partnership on a voluntary basis and build that up. So I'm not in clubs, etc. So the usual things, what other grown up men do, uh, that's slightly different. It's a very fascinating, call it spare time activity, the African Hydrogen Partnership. Now, having said that, I've been following the technology for 40 years. I think I already mentioned that. I went to a type of a grammar school in Germany. They're called gymnasium. And I was majoring in physics and in chemistry. And when I was 15, 16 years old, maybe even younger than that, we spoke about the basics of electrochemistry. And then they explained to us batteries and hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell technology and hydrogen derivatives. And then I thought this will come. Yeah. And for the first 20 years, people were, were just joking about me yeah, when I discussed, okay, we'll come, just wait, just wait. Yeah? And then that type of reaction stopped when George Bush back in, I think it was in 2003, really tried to develop the hydrogen and fuel cell tech in the United States. But that was too early. And then, of course, there were the wars in the Middle East coming up, great financial crisis, etc. cetera. And that then has changed. The technology advanced rapidly. And now everything is technologically readily available. The next big step is to achieve the large-scale commercialization of green hydrogen and the whole value creation chain with the aim to price diesel and petroleum out of the market between 2025 and 2013, so within the next 5 to 10 years.
1: Well, that's very exciting to hear. And what in your estimations does the contribution of hydrogen fuel technology, how much will it contribute to the global energy mix in the future, do you think? I mean, how reliant do you think we will be for our clean transition to renewables and achieving net zero on this technology?
0: That is a very good question, uh, though this question is very, very difficult to answer uh, because who can make reliable forecasts for the next 30 years to come till let's say, 2050? And even if one tried to do that, those uh, forecasts would require a huge computing effort and computing, so I'm a bit careful with that. But if we go back to the absolute basics, yeah, what are the choices that we have? There are batteries on the one side, and there's hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell tech, and hydrogen derivatives on the other side. That's it. So whether and, and how one quantifies that is, is even, will it be 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 percent? Very, very hard to say, but it will. This technology will have a very important role to play. That's for certain, and it will be a big part.
1: Siggy, for those of our audience who are just hearing now for the first time about the potential in hydrogen technology, tell us how much momentum is gathering around this technology and perhaps how ubiquitous we could expect it to be in the months and years ahead. I've got a specific reflection, really, on all the momentum that's gathering around COP26, which holds in November, and all of the efforts being made from governments globally to try and rally nations around a clean transition to renewable energy and to achieving net zero by 2050. What do you foresee the contribution of hydrogen fuels technology to that clean transition? And is it, therefore, Very likely that those of us who who are just now being introduced perhaps by you to this technology will find that it becomes commonplace and part of the vernacular from next year and beyond. Talk to us a little bit about the momentum that's gathering around the use of this technology, please.
0: Yeah, so so specifically focusing on the on the use of the technology, one sees in various countries real applications being implemented. Yeah. So for example, in the city of London, they have hydrogen fuel cell buses running. So of course they have battery electric buses, but hydrogen fuel cell electric buses as well. In Germany, I haven't checked it for a while now, but the Germans already must have around 100 hydrogen and fueling stations in Germany for uh, hydrogen fuel cell passenger cars. So which means if you buy a hydrogen fuel cell passenger car in Germany, you can refuel it already. So they have a real good coverage of hydrogen refueling stations in Germany. We see similar developments kicking in France, then Japan, and then of course, there's power to X. So that means one uses hydrogen, for producing synthetic fossil fuels like kerosene, right? And one can use those green synthetic fossil fuels in jet planes as a fuel. One can produce that using a chemical methods and processes of course you know that is costly but they are now first projects are kicking off for smaller planes so the the regular propeller planes there are quite a few interesting activities going on in the uk so the first planes are flying or first one or two planes are already flying in the in the uk using hydrogen future technology then in terms of the shipping industry especially For the large shipping industry, so container ships, crude carriers, etc., one one can't have them running on batteries. That is not possible. And the shipping industry has recognized that and has accepted it, and their focus is primarily in the short term on green methanol and then mid to long term on green ammonia. So there are all sorts of things. And it's quite interesting when I speak with uh, friends and family members Who really haven't heard about hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell technology, but now there are more and more people asking me about this. So they read it in the news, they come across certain applications, and that is an encouraging development.
1: So you mentioned that there are half a dozen or more African nations who are seeking to play a part in this global value chain. You spoke about Morocco, Mauritania, South Africa, Egypt. Mali's native hydrogen fields. For those nations that haven't backed hydrogen into their future plan, tell me what lessons you would like to impart for them, and what role, as an example, a landlocked African country that um, may have a lot of cloud or no competitive advantage in terms of solar radiation, what's the implication for a nation-state like that?
0: That relates more to, call it an economic question, in terms of, call it hard currencies, uh, because most of the African nations, or basically all, uh, have to import refined fossil fuels, so diesel and petroleum. That is a huge, huge financial burden, cost factor, and has all sorts of knock-on effects because that costs a lot of money, but at the same time, African nations struggle with making hard currencies or earning hard currencies on international markets. Yes, there's tourism, uh, there are minerals, and there are agricultural products, but that is relatively small. So, if one can come up with a process where one can stop this outflow of hard currency, so predominantly it's US dollars because the oil markets are denominated in US dollars. I can stop that outflow by having the the new fuel domestically produced in their own countries. Just that would have a positive economic impact.
1: And you foresee the cost of deploying this technology as being something that would be realizable? I mean, meeting those costs. It seems to me it's an expensive technology that we're talking
0: about. That's right. That is, at the moment, a very expensive technology because economies of scale haven't been achieved. So when you think about, for example, the CD players, when they replace the regular record players, I mean, they were outrageously expensive, or the first PCs and so on and so forth. And then economies of scale were achieved, which then reduced the cost significantly. And here, one has to come up with approaches that help African nations to facilitate a way so that they can utilize this technology at a relatively early stage.
1: That's a nice point to just talk about what AHP is doing in that regard. How is the role of the association that you've helped to found and that you support? How are you seeking to do that exactly?
0: I believe what is here absolute key is um, that one is able to form the strongest possible alliances yeah that sounds a bit like a buzzword but i mean the world is running out of time and african nations are really interested in getting that technology and forming the strongest possible alliance means bringing at least initially a few african nations together and say okay we collaborate here with the European Union, together with the Brits and the Commonwealth, with the Hydrogen Europe, which is one of the the strongest continental associations, we work together with the Canadians and Americans and Australians and Japanese and South Koreans and form this sort of joint joint force to make that reality. And and this is really where the African Hydrogen Partnership tries to to become a facilitator. And that, of course. Requires creating awareness and so on and, and so forth. For us.
1: Wonderful, Siggy. I wonder if I could ask you one final question, if I may. For those listening who want to learn more about this technology, where can they look to? What should they read?
0: Well, there are a few, of course. We have our, our websites uh, as well. So it's uh, www.afr h2 p.com. AFR stands for Africa, H2 for hydrogen, and P for partnership. But it's very easy. If they Google African hydrogen partnership, you get to it right
1: away. Great. Well, thank you for explaining this massive potential of this technology. We're all interested to see you make progress with the efforts that you're making to support African countries in developing their own strategies to tap into this technology and play their part in supporting not only their own economies transition and the continent's transition to clean energy sources, but also very excitingly, in the way that you outlined, the contribution that Africa nations. By dint of their competitive advantages that you refer to, could play in global energy transition and sustaining the transitions of more industrialized economies in the way that you mapped out in Europe specifically, but perhaps Asia and other regions too. Well, I can speak for myself. I'm really interested to see how this plays out. You've put us all on notice that your expectation, and you've been monitoring this and playing your own part for the last 40 years, as you say, but that your expectation is that this becomes becomes one of the principal sources of energy that um, humanity will use to make sure that we can try to stop the earth warming and realize some of the targets that global leaders have set for 2050 and even before then in some nation-state cases. It's exciting to see, you spoke about those countries in the Horn of Africa, in North Africa, in Southern Africa, where there's obvious competitive advantage. What's what was really interesting, I think, to hear was the implications for all African nation states and the opportunities that can be realized by them for them to participate. It really is, from what I've understood and what you've told us, a really big value chain. Let's hope that more and more African policymakers, industrial leaders can both learn about the the contribution of this technology, but also play their part you're seeking through the AHP to help them to do. Um, So thank you, Siggy, so much for your time. It's been a, a really interesting lesson for me, certainly, and feel sure for our audience into the power and potential of this technology. So thank you. Thank you, Siggy.
0: Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you for tuning into our Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.